You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hi, my name is Ria. I make Little Stories for Tiny People, a podcast for kids for a living. Ria Pector describes herself as a lifelong daydreamer with an overactive imagination. She put her creativity to good use when she started her beloved podcast, Little Stories for Tiny People. Five years and over a hundred stories later, Ria has helped countless children drift off to sleep and even more exhausted parents from losing their minds. Here's my chat with Ria Pector. Who are you and what do you make for a living? I'm Ria Pector, and I create children's audio stories for my podcast, Little Stories for Tiny People. How'd you get started? Well, um, let's see. It was back in 2015 that I started the podcast. I think I got the idea a few months prior. I was listening to a lot of podcasts at the time. I had two little kids. I was at home a lot. And... I had podcasts as kind of the soundtrack of my own life. So I really loved them. And I think I was looking for something of my own. I had a uh, three-year-old and a one-year-old at the time. And um, anybody who has kids that age knows uh, it's very challenging and um, very emotionally taxing. I wasn't working. So I was kind of in a a spot where I wanted to figure out what I was doing with my life. I really needed something of my own. I'd always been creative since I was a child. I had written fiction. I had always had a very vivid imagination. And I had put all that aside for a long time throughout my schooling, going to college, going to graduate school. And I think when I had my kids, I started to feel a little bit like I was disappearing. And I think that's where it really came from. I had to get back to who I had always been. I had always thought of myself as creative and I'd always loved making things. But somewhere along the way, I had just stopped doing it. And I think it became kind of an urgent need when I had little kids because my days were filled with a lot of mundane activities. (laughs) There weren't a lot of tangible accomplishments. Everything I did throughout the day could be undone or had to be repeated many times. Um, You clean up and then it's messy a second later. I had kind of lost myself. So I I think it came out of that need for to create something. I think that all people who make things, well, I think people make things. That's part of being human. But I think there's something about making something tangible that says, I'm here. I exist. I am real. And When you're in a place in your life when you're thinking, am I real? Like, where did I go? (laughs) I think it can help to make something that is unique, that is your own. And that I think that's where it all came from. The stories themselves, I don't don't really know uh, how I got to them. I wrote several to start. I actually spent months on the first story, which I later turned into a book. This is Little Fox Can't Wait to Dream. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea what I would do with that story. I just, I think I was in that mindset of, I have to make something that is just mine, that the kids can't 
ruin that, <laughs> it, you know, it can't be undone. And I wrote that story and it really brought me back to childhood. It gave me this hugely gratifying feeling and I just wanted that feeling again. So I kept writing. I banked maybe four or five stories and I don't know, I got this idea for the podcast and I figured I would try it out. It was it was an experiment for sure. I mean, as a writer, I mean, most writers, their MO is to write, put it down on paper and publish as a book. What is it about podcasting that made you think, you know, what I'm going to do is record these things myself? Like, were you a performer at any point in your life? Had you ever done anything where you'd turned on a microphone or a camera and said, I'm going to be the center of this? <laughs> no, um, I'm actually very shy. I have crippling stage fright. So I'm not a performer at all. I've always been good at public speaking. I've always been good at writing. I remember I kind of shocked everyone at my sister's wedding when I gave this long speech that everyone loved. I mean, it just went over so well. And it was storytelling. I told a story. I tied it all together. And that was probably the first time I had spoken into a microphone since, you know, I was in high school in the play when I had a good part and I forgot half my lines because I was so <laughs> terrified. So, no, I don't ha I didn't have any experience. Still, I look back and I'm like, what did I think I was doing? And I, I think I've always tried to just try things out, see how they go. I like to jump into something and then learn. And I don't know, I listened to some of the kids' podcasts that were out there. And I thought, I mean, I could do this. <laughs> it wasn't anything negative about them. I just thought, this is possible. And, you know, podcasting has a very low barrier to entry. <laughs> it's not that hard to put together. It's the YouTube of audio. Exactly. And I had done a lot of research on publishing because, like you said, the traditional way is you write, you polish up your manuscript, you try to find an agent. I had um, always thought maybe I would do that. And I took that first story. I worked on it for months. I researched the industry. And what I learned was when you pay attention to the people who've really tried to go that route for a long time, it is really hard. It's kind of like winning the lottery to really to get an agent. And I think it comes down to your goals because I had to get very honest with myself. Was the goal to publish traditionally because that was the, the appropriate way? Was that the prestigious way? Or could there be another way with my goal being, I just want to write. I just want to put my stuff out there. And you know, I think that a lot of people, you know, in my generation and older, you know, so when I was 10 and I was imagining maybe I would be a cartoonist one day or a children's book illustrator, <laughs> which is what I was thinking, there was no podcast. There, there was barely an internet. The old way was the only way. And I think that a lot of us are still... I won't say stuck, but it's it can be hard to get beyond that, 
especially with writers, uh, I think there are a lot of people who they still just want to do the traditional way. And the industry has really changed. And in some ways, it's even harder than it was before. So I, I think that there was a mental block there for me. It wasn't like I thought it was nothing. It was I was rejecting the traditional way. And it was very uncomfortable for me because I do think I grew up thinking of I would have a pretty linear path, which sounds so silly now. <laughs> that's not like no one has that, but that's kind of what I thought. And so, yeah, it, I uh, had a hard time with that. I um, feel like I've grown a lot since then. And I think about it very differently. Well, just for some context, you've got like nine seasons yeah. worth of stories and with like nine or 10 stories per season within there. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is a, a major commitment, not just to the work, but also to the broadcast of the production. What was it to sort of, as you're saying, abandon the traditional way of going about getting your stuff out there, bypassing it all and saying, I'm going to put this out for free. What, did, what was that like? Did you feel you were devaluing it or did you feel like you were giving it an opportunity to actually be seen and heard? Hmm. That's a great question. Yeah, I I think when you look at the body of work that I have now, it's very different than how I was looking at it before it was what it is. So at the time, there was never any idea of making money from the work at all. Um, That wasn't part of it. I didn't think about that until much later. So that question that you just asked about devaluing, I think that's a really important one that I came to think about in recent years. But in the beginning, I just wanted to put my work out there. I just wanted to put it into the world and see what happened. And I fully expected no one would listen to it. So I didn't think I I didn't think five years later I would be talking about this. I just wanted to experiment. And I saw it as a new for art form that I was trying out, just as I've tried out various art forms. I've tried oil painting. I've, I do knitting. I do visual arts. So yeah, at the time, it didn't seem anything like that. And it, it also didn't feel like a choice between, hmm, I'm foregoing these piles of money that I could be making (laughs) off of this extraordinary work. (laughs) And I will forego all that in favor of making no money and giving away my work for free. It, it didn't, it, that was not real. So there was no, um, choice there. Well, it's funny that you say that because, you know, oddly enough, I was just reading an article about musicians and streaming services. And many of these musicians are not the multi-zillion dollar sellers. They're workaday musicians. And they're absolutely getting nothing from streaming services because of the nature of the algorithms and the splits and things like that. Mm -hmm, Right. It's not like they are making a lot from these deals and from Mm -hmm. this extra, let's say, cachet of going the traditional route and having all these people in their corner. And most of them, I would assume, have given up their publishing, for example. So I don't even know if they necessarily control their own music anymore. Whereas you do control your stories. You do control your Mm -hmm. content. You control how it goes out and what is done with it ultimately. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I do think that's very important. And when you do look into traditional publishing, I'll give you an example. I I published uh, my picture book 
independently. Now, I have seen these things, comparisons between traditional publishing, self-publishing. I do think that is, again, a false choice because when I looked very critically, because, you know, I try to be my own worst critic, I think that can be helpful um, to really assess your work. When I looked at that book, I didn't think I could get a publisher. And there were numerous reasons for that. One is rhyming books are not easy to get published. Uh, They can't be translated into different languages. And there's just a trend against that right now. So when I looked at what I had, I thought, okay, well, this book, it will never be published traditionally. And even if it did, I did the math on that. And you don't make very much money being a picture book author. Um, After a couple years, if your book hasn't sold enough, they'll put it out of print and you can never put it in print again yourself. Meanwhile, I wanted to just see if I could make a book. Again, this is an experiment. I thought I couldn't do it. I told everyone I cannot do that. And then I proceeded to do it, (laughs) which seems to be a trend in my life. So people, I published that in 2018. It has sold pretty well among my audience, which was the purpose of it. Uh, people buy the book almost every day still, and I have made money from it. So I call that a success when this book, I am almost certain would not have come into existence otherwise. And interestingly, you've gone a lot further than just, for example, starting a podcast where you're recording and putting out stories. You have a book that you sell, you have merchandise, t-shirts and and whatnot. You are also recommending books mm-hmm. uh, as an affiliate, an Amazon affiliate. So you're, you're finding ways to mm-hmm. uh, service your audience with lots of different things. And none mm-hmm. of that would really be possible if you were going the traditional route. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what do you do to drive people to your site? Because that's obviously the hub of your little empire that you've built. <laughs> <laughs> My empire, yes. Um, you know, I, people come from the podcast. I think that they are curious about what's on my site. I try to mention it. You're totally right that I do want people to go there. And and I have to give credit uh, where credit is due. My husband is an amazing computer guy and he designed my website. It's actually quite different than a lot of podcasters' websites. I don't know if you've noticed, a lot of podcasters have very simplistic websites that are just generated from their hosting provider. So the fact that I have my own website that can be, I can tell him, hey, I would like this to happen on my website. And magically, after lots of work, it appears there. So that's been huge. And that's given me a lot of control. So I am in this great position where I can look ahead and say, okay, If I create such and such a product, which I have a bunch of things on my list that I'm planning to do, and I put them on my site, people will buy them. Some number of people will buy them. I can speak to thousands of people on the podcast and say, hey, this is on my site. Go check it out. Go sign up, whatever. So that's been a huge thing, definitely. Now, for those of us who have relatively new podcasts like myself, 
Mm-hmm. You know, for a lot of us, the the real question is how do we drive people to listen to our podcast in the first place? Mm-hmm. Because there's a, there are a are there are a lot of podcasts out there, and b there's a lot of option out there for people in terms of where they're going. But you've been around for a while, and you've been doing this since you know since certainly an earlier time. I mean, five six years. You've got quite a head start, for example, on someone like myself. And people are asking, how do I get listeners? How do I get listeners? Is there some ways that you have found that have been really useful and helpful in getting people to discover your stories? Mm. You know, I've gotten this question a lot. I'm not sure, which is not, I know that's super unhelpful. Um, So I think part of it was timing for me. Um, uh, Right now, kids' podcasts are pretty popular. I mean, I think most parents still don't know they exist, but they're way, way more popular than they were five years ago the landscape has changed a lot. So I think the timing was good. I somehow, the algorithms, you know, were in my favor somehow. You know, I I think keywords help, but that's also like a black box that no one actually knows what happens behind there. So, you know, you can look online and see all of that stuff. But I think really what has driven people to the podcast has been exactly what you said to me. I think it might've been before we started recording about telling your friend about it, that like old fashioned telling friends either in person or at a play group in the before times when people had those things or posting in a Facebook group um, there are so many parenting groups now. So I I think, yeah, my early listeners got the ball rolling in telling their friends. And it's not super helpful to other podcasters to say, okay, well, make something that people will share. <laughs> you know, that's okay. Well, how do you do that? So I I don't know. And, you know, to be honest, I am not very good at self-promotion. I'm not super comfortable with it. And I've never done like paid advertising or anything like that. So it's really just been trying to put out quality work, doing what I can to have the algorithm gods notice me encouraging my audience to, if they value it, if it's, if it's helping their family to just tell somebody about it. Yeah, I think those things have really helped. And there have been, I've gotten a, a bunch of media mentions, but that's, I, I don't really know how that happens. So I, I did early on, I felt so silly doing it. I wrote a press release um, when I first started and I felt ridiculous because I, I quoted myself <laughs> in it, which I... It was so embarrassing. Um, (laughs) And I sent it to precisely two reporters. And amazingly, six months after I sent it out, I got a response. And so I was on the cover of the very local paper, but it was distributed in the Baltimore Sun too. So 
that was really cool. To this day, I have no idea how much that <laughs> helped the podcast, um, but it felt like this huge thing at the time. Well, but I think that the, you've mentioned something that I think a lot of people don't think of because most people think, oh, I'm just going to blast it out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, every other thing I can find, Instagram, and, you know, and, and they forego the fact that there is people at the other end of this. I mean, you want an actual human to interact, to download, mm -hmm. to listen to, and hopefully enjoy what you're putting out. And if you forget that there's a human out there, then you're also going to forget the fact that there are humans who spend their days trying to discover this stuff from the other side. They're trying to find it either for themselves to listen to or to help promote. So I think that as ridiculous as it sounds to put out a press release where you're quoting yourself, which granted, you know, of course that's going to feel ludicrous. And yet it worked, <laughs> you know, and it's one of those things that right. you wouldn't have thought of doing because it felt so silly. But in, yes. certainly in the early goings, when you are a, an army of one, who else was going to write that mm -hmm. release for you? That's right. <laughs> and I think that the other flip side is, you know, a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to make a podcast. Oh, I'm going to make a blog. Oh, I'm going to make a, a YouTube channel. And they think it's just going to be awesome and that people are going to enjoy it. But the reality is you have to be focused on making something that people are going to enjoy. Mm -hmm. You have to make something that's high quality and that, that, that people are going to feel a real attachment to. Yeah. And you've done that with these stories. I mean, I can speak from absolute personal uh, experience. When we found these, it was an immediate hit in our family. Uh, my wife found Aww. them somewhere. And again, it was a word of mouth thing. It was from one of the, the, the mom groups she was on on Facebook. And, and somewhere along the way, someone had recommended it and she had seen this post. Mm -hmm. And she took a listen. She said, you got to listen to this. And so I listened. And then we were on a trip with our daughter. And we're not big on, you know, flipping on an iPad in the car. So we're, we're trying to keep her away from the screens as much as we can. And this was a perfect way of doing that. Mm -hmm. And we popped it on in between your voice and the fantastic stories and, the, you know, the silliness and the fun of it and the animals and the talking. And, and she had a blast. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, this is the greatest podcast ever. I don't care what anyone else says about any other podcast. Anything that keeps your three-year-old mm -hmm. quiet and happy is the greatest podcast that's ever been made. <laughs> That's so, right. you know, it's, it's, I think you can't discount the fact that there's also talent there. In other words, I think a lot of podcasters are just getting out there to make their podcast. And that's the end of the day. But mm, you're a writer yeah. of stories. Podcast is actually just one of the avenues through which you're actually broadcasting or delivering it. Mm -hmm. And that makes it a little bit different. You know, it's, it's a little more in the true crime, uh, uh, you know, area where it's a story that's being told. As opposed to, for example, what we're doing, mm. which is just yapping. Yeah, I've never been compared to true crime before. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's mysteries between the hedgehog and the treehouse, you know. It's like that, that was, you know, mm -hmm. the frog and the salamander and there was a bloodbath. It was terrible. No, just kidding. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I just mean in terms of storytelling, you know, this is actually something that you could close your eyes and imagine uh, in that same way oh, and go on a journey and stuff. You. And what what's also really interesting is it's not timely. It's not a weekly thing, right? Like you put these out over time. No specific yes. release date in, in, in terms of it. That's right. You know, I've I've come to that over time. I think when I first started, I felt like I had to be on a schedule. And I think that's probably very a good instinct for when you start out um, because, you know, your audience wants to kind of get a sense of you and it's it's good to have a rhythm. But you know, it, over time, as I got more comfortable and I gained an audience who seemed to put up with me disappearing, for example, when I had my third child, 
I had, she's four. I had no idea if I would have an audience when I came back from that. How long did you take off? Probably six months. Might have been more. I was kind of like, okay, bye. And then <laughs> I, I just couldn't, I couldn't, I had planned to keep going, I think, until I had her. And silly me, it's like each time I had a baby, I forgot what it was like uh, for some reason. Um, I had that amnesia um, of like, oh, yeah, I'll just get back into podcasting like pretty soon. And of course, that was not the case. If I was doing interviews or a different type of podcast, it would be totally different. I need a lot of mental space to write. So if I'm exhausted, not sleeping and dealing with a cranky baby and two older kids. It was just too much. I didn't have any mental space to write. I actually thought I will never write again. And um, sometimes I get a little dramatic, <laughs> um, as you might imagine from my characters. And yeah, so I disappeared and I fully thought, okay, well, I guess that's it. You know, if I ever come back, then nobody will be there. But people were still there. And then the show got more popular as it went along. So, you know, I realized podcasting is just a medium. I don't have to follow the rules. There, there aren't actual rules, you know, you have to be putting out quality work, of course. If you're doing that, if people really like your work, they will wait. And um, I do that. I have podcasts that I'm subscribed to that have not put out an episode in over a year. And I am still just waiting around like, okay, <laughs> whenever you come back, I'll be here. Um, and I, I have seen my audience do that for me. So over time, I have um, changed up my my production schedule. I um, used to try to do every two weeks for like four months at a time and then take a break and then go back. Now I'm trying to do like every three to four weeks. And, you know, with with COVID, it's just I've had to be flexible and uh, everyone has to be flexible right now. In my mind, I'm like, okay, I need to record for 45 minutes. Usually that's how long it takes me. Uh, once every couple of weeks, that, that'll be easy. My house is never quiet, <laughs> ev ever. My kids are always here. My husband works from home. And the way my house is structured, it's not, it's not small, but, but anybody walking upstairs, it is like thunder it, where I'm recording. So I recorded the other day and my, I had just dropped my daughter off at preschool, which she just started going to recently. So I have a couple hours in the afternoon, dropped her off, raced home and like, oh, I could record today. And I go around, I kind of get buy-in from everybody. I'm talking <laughs> to my husband, can you be quiet for 40 minutes? He says, yes. And I go up and talk to my sons. I'm like, can you just please be quiet while you're on your classes? And they say, yeah, yeah. But still, it was like I was running upstairs every five minutes saying, stop dragging that car across the table. You know, it, so it's just you have to be flexible. And I, I've had to be flexible and my audience has had to be flexible. And I just keep telling myself, if I keep putting out 
quality work that's really good. I keep the high standard. It's it's okay. It's okay. Tell me about the recording side of things, because again, as a writer, normally you would put pen to paper or fingers to keys, and that would be it. And then you send it off to somebody else to to make it and bind it and package it and put it out there. With a podcast, you have to know how to record. You have to have a space for it. You have to have a certain amount of technical knowledge. How did you come by all of that? Um, I learned as I went. I started with a borrowed microphone from my sister, my super old laptop. I downloaded Audacity, which is a free open source program I still use to this day. And I just started. And so, you know, if you listen to my earliest episodes, that's kind of obvious (laughs) that I didn't know what I was doing, which I think is okay. But yeah, I just, I learned over time, trial and error. I got advice from other podcasters. I think YouTube is amazing for learning anything now. So yeah, I think there's a learning curve, of course but it's it's definitely doable and you don't need high-end expensive equipment either. In terms of your early podcasting, and I'm assuming as well some of your earlier writing, were you concerned that you didn't know enough? Were you concerned about feeling like an imposter? Uh, yes, definitely. <laughs> How did you get over that? I mean, what happened that made you feel like you had a bit more of a handle on this? It, I kept going. And from, from doing more, I experimented more. I knew enough to know when I was onto something good. I remember one of my best early stories was Mouse Bakes a Cake, which is about a mouse who bakes this terrible cake for his grandmother. <laughs> anyway, I made that story and I was like, okay, I think this is, I'm getting somewhere. And so I tried to take note of what was what was working, what was not. But yeah, it, it just took a lot of time. I felt like an imposter for a long time until recently, I think. I was invited to speak at a, a the biggest podcast conference, podcast movement, and I was on a panel. And uh, like I said, I have crippling stage, right? So I spent the month before that basically not being able to focus on anything else. I was terrified. (laughs) I felt like an imposter, felt like, who am I to speak at this? It ended up going really well. And I felt like, okay, I was supposed to be here. So it just took experiences over time. And so that's why I really think, you know, people say, start before you're ready. I think that's incredible advice. I really think you need to start before you feel ready because the the problem is unless you've done lots of projects in the past and you have feel like you have your creative footing, you know, in your life, um, if you're starting new, you're not going to feel ready. (laughs) You're not going to be ready. You have to actually do it. And you have to feel all the feelings of doing that and step into that vulnerability and learn from it and um, see where you stumble. And I look back and I think, yeah, my early stories, I don't think they are as good as my more recent ones, but I couldn't have gotten to the stories that I do now had I not gone through all that. I had to 
find my footing over time. And it's just all part of, I don't want to say all part of the journey because that's so, it sounds so <laughs> cheesy, but that just came into my mind. But yeah, it's all, it's all part of it. You're not going to feel ready at the beginning. You said you you reached out to and got support from a bunch of other podcasters. How did you find other podcasters to be in touch with? Because it's a pretty solitary endeavor to be a writer and a podcaster, you know, in your basement, which is where most of us are. How did you find these folks? <laughs> well, uh, mostly there there is a group called Kids Listen, which is kids podcasters. It does exist. And there are a lot of members now. But when I started, it was kind of pretty small. But yeah, that's that's pretty much where I, I got to connect. So I know like a lot of the top kids podcasters, I know them. So that's kind of cool. We have talked. Also, uh, one of them has uh, self-published a bunch of books. So we got to talk on the phone about that and I got to pick her brain. But I'll be honest, the first like year I was in that group, I it, this is all on Slack. I didn't say anything. I didn't ask any questions. <laughs> I felt like, I sh- who am I? I shouldn't be here. Um, even in the Slack so channel, yeah. you didn't feel like you belonged. <laughs> I no, I didn't. I didn't even. I was so scared of showing how little I knew. Oh, gosh, it's so silly. But I, yeah, I was so scared that I didn't talk. I wanted to upgrade my audio setup, but I didn't want to tell anyone what I had because I thought, oh gosh, they're going to think I am such an amateur. Well, what was your setup and what's your setup now? Well, at the time my setup was a, um, that, like I said, a borrowed microphone. It was like a blue snowball. It's a very basic USB mic plugged into my laptop and I used audacity I haven't changed that much. I changed my mic and I use a Zoom recorder now. But but yeah, I don't have anything fancy, but I got great advice. Like I had another kids podcaster listen. I sent him my raw audio. He sent me back how he would edit it and put down all the steps he did. That was so helpful. He gave me a checklist. So that kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's great to be able to connect to other people who are going to be generous and kind and encouraging. And do you find that much of the community is exactly that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really important to find people who are doing something similar, who you can pick their brain, ask some questions. I've also gotten in touch with other writers. There's another podcaster. She doesn't write children's stuff, but she does fiction. Um, I've emailed her and she's been very nice to me. So I think it does help to reach out to people. People reach out to me and I'm always really (laughs) like, oh, wow, they want to ask me questions. Um, I'm totally happy to give advice on stuff like that. I've had parents who listen who are interested in, they're like, oh, now I want to write my own stories or do my own podcast. And I'm happy to talk to people. So I always remember that when I get hesitant about reaching out to someone for help, that that they're probably going to be happy to to talk to you. Well, Rhea, where can people find out more about you? So you can find my podcast, Little Stories for Tiny People, on all the major podcast apps. You can just put it in the search bar if you want. 
can also find my website at littlestoriestinypeople.com. Um, I also, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Um, I give like little behind the scenes stuff, little clips of new episodes. I'm not like, I'm not on social media that much, but I try to give my audience just fun little peeks behind the mic and Instagram. I'm at little stories, tiny people and the same on Facebook. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing with us how you make a living. Thank you so much for having me. Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on the show, visit makingalivingshow.com and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.